This morning we are in part three of a series that we're calling Your New Default. What we're trying to drill down on now is to kind of help us identify and maybe even change some of our defaults. So what do we mean by that? Well, as we said a few weeks ago in part one, we all have defaults. And for most of us, the default is a default reaction to something. You and I have a default reaction to almost everything. And our default is rarely awesome. It's rarely good. So we started this series in part one a few weeks ago, talking about the default that a lot of us have toward judgment, that we are accomplished judgers. Church people just are. Can we acknowledge that? I think we have acknowledged that. We judge each other and we judge just, well, we just judge. We judge situations and we always judge negatively. That's the default. So we took some time looking at why judgment is a bad idea for us. And the whole idea behind Jesus' teaching on, on judgment is that we're not in a place to judge. It's not ours to judge. Discernment is a little bit different. That's what makes that judgment, discernment, tension kind of challenging. But we're not in a place to judge. Only God is in a place to judge. That was part one. And then last time in part two, we talked about the default of distrust and suspicion. We talked about moving from a place of suspicion to a place of trust. We talked about our tendency to fill in gaps in information with suspicion rather than trust. And we looked at some familiar verses in 1 Corinthians 13 in a way that maybe some of us had never considered before. And we came away asking, what would it look like if we started filling gaps in information with the most generous explanation possible? Like, what if we decided that even though we don't always know what's going on, like with the people in our lives, there must be a perfectly good explanation? And that was a hard teaching for a lot of us. Because a default setting is to be suspicious. And the default setting is to fill in gaps with our own information. The default setting I want to talk about today is anger. You're like, oh, I'm off the hook. Oh, just hold on. The question I want to get us us, uh, started today, and for those of you who are joining us online, the question is a pretty straightforward one. Why are we so angry? Why am I so quick to be angry? Why are you so angry? I read something a couple weeks ago, and I was actually surprised that these numbers weren't higher. It said 49% of men and 53% of women are angrier now than they were a year ago. I kind of thought that would be higher, but I think some people aren't in touch with them. They aren't very self-aware. We live... I mean, it's just like everywhere you look. We live in an angry culture. Do any of you remember when social media used to be fun? Remember that Facebook thing back in like 2007? We're like, huh, adults can get on here. This is kind of cool. And we just used it to like reconnect with friends from high school or college or friends who maybe moved away when it used to be, or, or, or let's just say, it was a way, it quickly became a way to just manage our image before others, right? Like, and that's another topic for another day. Maybe we'll work that in the default settings. But it used to be a lot less angry. And now, after a year and a half of COVID and a contentious election worked in there, I mean, aren't they all contentious? And after the busiest tourist season we've ever seen in our area, like everywhere you go, people are screaming in all caps and everyone's like outraged about something or some cause or some issue. And you probably see it leaking out of you too. Like you're in the express 
self-checkout lane at the store on your way home from work and you just need to pick up two things for dinner and it appears that the person in front of you has never seen a barcode scanner. <laughs> right? Oh, okay, I know who you are. Yeah. And you're like instantly seething. Have you noticed that about yourself? Or how about this one? I don't know if you can identify with this. <clears throat> Let's say you're just trying to get through town on High Street in the late afternoon. <laughs> Do you remember 30 years ago they talked about we're going to build a bypass around Ellsworth? Yeah, remember that too. It's October, right? Like, isn't it time for these people to go home? You've thought it. You've said it. You've rolled your window down and said so, especially if they have such and such a license plate on their car. I know, right? Yes. I know why you changed your jersey plates right away. Uh, but <laughs> he might have told me that. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, God forbid that car from out of state wants to make a last second lane change because they don't really know where they're going, you know, and you're not about to let them in. You're like, no, 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 no. You've got to wait in line just like everybody else. Or how about you're simply walking through the living room and you step on a piece of Lego. Now that hurts. I don't know if you've ever done that or not. Lego has made a reappearance around our house and I love it. I love Lego, but it is the devil's carpet. Okay? You step on a piece of Lego and you like hit the nuclear button. I mean, there is a meltdown in your home, right? So like, what is that? Why so angry? Where does that come from? Sometimes it seems like the least little thing will set you off. And sometimes you don't see it coming and it seems like a big deal in the moment and you're like, ah, you know, and, but here's what often happens. <clears throat> Something sets you off at work or more accurately, someone sets you off at work. And here's the thing about work. You moderate your angry response at work, right? You have to. You have to moderate your angry response at work because otherwise you're going to get fired. So that's what we do. So what happens is you're mad about something that happens at work and you take it out on the people sitting at the traffic light and then you come home and you take it out on the people you live with and you take it out on your kids, and you take it out on your spouse, and you take it out on your neighbor. Like, why? Like, why so angry? What is that? And where does that come from? So, yeah, we live in an angry culture. We live in an age of outrage. And that's not healthy. And it's not really addressing the issue to simply blame the culture we live in either. Several years ago, I heard Andy Stanley say this about anger, that ultimately... Anger says, you owe me. You owe me. I love that. You owe me. Because it seems like you've never observed a bar scanner at the checkout. Like, what? Look, you're looking at that like a calf at a new gate. Like, it's not complicated. You just cost me like a minute and a half of my life that I'm never going to get back. Like, I am, like, you owe me. You took the job that I should have gotten, and you're not deserving, and you're not qualified just because you kissed up to the boss, and now I don't get the raise, and I don't get the promotion. You owe me, and you failed the class, and it's not because you didn't study. It, it, it wasn't multiple choice. See, it was a subjective grade, and your teacher, your professor just had it out for you, and now he owes you. She owes you. That's what anger says. But if we start to apply this as a lens over our lives, we'll look back, and we'll realize, you know what? Yeah, that is how I've felt. That's how I feel now in this particular situation. That's, that's, he owes me. She owes me. Now, anger isn't always bad. In fact, in the New Testament, in passages like in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, be angry. 
Like, be angry, but don't let the sun go down on it. So anger is a natural, normal, sometimes healthy human emotion. It has a healthy function. Like, so let's talk about that. When you look at human nature, anger is healthy when, number one, a real threat exists. So if you <clears throat> see a wild animal in your backyard and your kids are playing back there, or maybe you've got a neighbor who's got some illegal exotic pets, okay? And like it was cute when he walked his crocodile on a leash through the neighborhood. That was cute. But now the crocodile is loose in your backyard and you have a right to be angry, okay? You shouldn't have crocodiles in your garage and now you've got this thing going on with your neighbor. Like, what are you trying to do? Kill my children? You have a right to be angry because a real threat actually exists. A crocodile is threatening your children. That anger is a good thing kind of thing that's helped keep us alive all these years. Here's where it gets tricky. Number two, anger is healthy when the level of your anger is proportionate to the threat. The level of your anger needs to be proportionate to the threat. So loose crocodile in the backyard, kids at play. Yes, you should be angry at your irresponsible neighbor. However, most of our anger is not like that. It's like Piece of Lego on the floor. Yes, it hurts, but your child does not need to be grounded for the next three months, okay? Like, that is disproportionate. Level of your anger should be proportionate to the threat. And then number three, anger is healthy when your actions effectively reduce the threat with the least amount of harm to yourself and to others. I'll just repeat that. When your actions effectively reduce the threat with the least amount of harm to yourself and to others. So in part one of this series, we talked about judgment versus grace. And we said that there's something that, for all these things, these defaults, there's something that happens in your brain. Like the brain that I believe God created, God designed. That there's these factions that kind of, there's this tension. They're, they're kind of working against each other at times, but they can work together. And neurologists and people who study the brain and brain science, they say that basically what happens is this. Uh, you have the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that controls fight or flight response, and they have the hippocampus, the part of the brain that controls your rational thought. So fight or flight, that's where the crocodile in the backyard thing kicks in. It's primitive. It's what kept, it's kept humans alive. That's a healthy function. The other response happens in the hippocampus, and that's the rational, intelligent part of your brain that says, wait a minute, actually, that isn't a crocodile. It's an iguana. Still a weird pet, but not a threat. Okay? Like, it's still kind of gross. Why can't he just have a dog? But so, so what happens is your rational thought talks to your primitive side and talks you down. So this is the challenge. I want to ask you a couple questions. We're going to get to some scripture, but just, let's just be real honest and answer these in our own heart, in our own mind, as honestly as you can. First, who owes you? If you're angry, someone owes you. You believe it wholeheartedly. Someone owes you. So who owes you? We got to start there. Here's something that's true about you and it's true about me. That sometimes the person who is receiving the brunt of our anger is not actually the person who owes us. Like your wife doesn't owe you. Your kids don't owe you. 
Your boss isn't the one that owes you. I mean, some of you, your father walked out on you when you were a kid and it left a huge gap and you had a, or maybe you had a father that you looked to for love and acceptance and affirmation and gave you anything but love. But you know what? And I don't think this is group therapy, so, but if you want to look at your rage, maybe it goes back to something like that. Maybe it goes back to your childhood, to your teen years. Somebody owed you and it's been sitting there for decades and you're suspicious and you're judgmental and you're angry and the people closest to you who are living with you in the present, they don't owe you. They don't owe you. But your unresolved anger is leaking out all over them and it poisons our homes and it poisons our friendships and it poisons our parenting and it poisons our work environments. So let's start working on an answer to that question. Who do I believe owes me? Is it the employer who fired you unjustly? Is it that professor who failed you? Is it the business partner who betrayed you? Is it the ex who left you, who didn't work as hard at your marriage as you did? Like, who owes you? Then ask yourself the next question, and it's a bit deeper. Why? Why do they owe you? Like, why do you believe they owe you? Like, why do you think your kids owe you? Why does your boss owe you? Why does your ex owe you? Why does your neighbor owe you? Like, why? These are really tough questions. And if you want to wade into the heart of it, what we need to do is to get into Jesus' teachings because Jesus got to the heart of anger and he got to the heart of who owes us and why they owe us and how this works. So he gets into the middle of his ministry, Jesus does, and he he lived on the earth for about 33 years. We believe that after those 33 years, he was crucified, he died, he was buried, and we believe that he rose on the third day and he was ushered. He, he ushered in a way to enter into relationship with God. We believe that Jesus, that when we come to God through Jesus, we find forgiveness of sins through Jesus, that we come to new life through Jesus. And we believe that one of the things that he wants for us is to make our lives new, not just in the life to come, but in this life, in the here and now. So Jesus gives quite a bit of time and lots of space in the gospel accounts to explaining all this, we often refer to it as life in the kingdom of God in this new reality. It's here, and it's not fully here. And Jesus takes a lot of time to teach about the life that he's called us to. Later, the apostle Paul um, would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 17, where he said, anyone, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, the new life has come. So Jesus is teaching about this new life. He's teaching about the process that we've come to know as sanctification, of becoming more and more holy. And he's teaching about life in his kingdom. And he's teaching about the subject of forgiveness. And he says, if you want to know how to do conflict resolution, here's how you do it. First of all, you go directly to the person that you're mad at, okay? You go directly to the person you've had the falling out with. Go directly to the person that you think owes you. Now, We're terrible at this as human beings. Because what do we do? We're like, I'm mad at you, so I'm going to talk to you. It's what we do. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. First of all, go directly to the person that you're mad at or that you've had the falling out with. And one of his disciples, Peter, is listening and he's processing this and he's thinking about, you know, how this would play out in real life, and he's got a question. So we're going to pick that up right in Matthew 18, kind of in the middle of this uh, dialogue, okay? Matthew chapter 18, this is about the midway point in Jesus' ministry, and 
Um, so much of the stuff he's been teaching and living out, some of his followers are still struggling to get their brains around it. Peter comes in verse 21 and he says, okay, I heard what you said. I heard what you said, Jesus. That's great. Go directly to the person. But so Lord, like how often? It's like, that's a good question. How often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Because, <clears throat> okay, like we dealt with it. Uh, I went directly to the person. Uh, I, I went, uh, I went to, to him directly. Now, like how many times do I have to do that? Like two times? Three times? You know, and you, you, you've asked this question before, right? Those of us who are married or you're dating or whatever, or like you're like, how often do I have to forgive? And Peter thinks he's going to be generous. Watch what he says in verse 21. It's like, Jesus, I'm going to give you some suggestions here. So like, because I'm a very generous man. Uh, so, uh, so Jesus, how about seven times? Thinking Jesus was going to be really impressed with that. And Jesus is like, uh, n- no, actually, Peter, not, not seven times. Not seven times. And he's like, well, what then? If not seven, like, what are we talking about here, Jesus? Like, I thought I was getting this. And Jesus is like, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. So some translations, depending on which Bible you're using, some say 77 times. Most of them say 70 times seven. So 77 times, 490 times, whatever. Most of us bail before we ever get to seven. So let's not, in other words, it's a lot of times, okay? We're still short of what this verse is saying. I think Peter's like, what are you getting at, Jesus? Like, I like seven better. I thought my number was a good number, seven. I thought I was being pretty generous there. So, like, maybe I should stop asking questions. And Jesus is like, Peter, you just got to keep forgiving. That's my point. And it's safe to say that Jesus is using hyperbole here, which is exaggeration for the sake of making a point. Seventy times seven. In other words, there's no limit. And then because Jesus knows Peter's not getting it, we know... uh, and we know when we hear this, we're like, well, that's dumb. <laughs> I, I, I don't think this is a good idea. This is not going to work. This is not how human relationships work, Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. So he goes on and tells a story, verse 23. Jesus' words. Therefore, <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. <clears throat> now, notice the language. Accounts. Money. So if you want to talk about anger being, you know, you owe me, <clears throat> But that's what anger says? Well, Jesus frames it in terms of money. If I borrow, like, let me just ask you. If I borrow $5,000 from you, how much do I owe you? $5,000. It's not a trick question, right? If I borrow $5,000 from you, uh, you're not going to charge me interest because Christians don't do that. So you're going to, well, that's what the New Testament says. So you're going to uh, loan me money, and then I'm going to pay you back the money that I borrow. So I borrowed $5,000, and that's what I owe you, okay? Now, if I don't pay you back, how are you feeling about that? Probably feel angry, and rightly so. And Jesus is like, so you guys get this, right? Okay, you got this king. Guy borrowed some money from him, verse 24. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Now, <clears throat> that's a translation from the original language, right? Because obviously Jesus didn't speak English. I'm not saying he couldn't speak English. He can speak whatever he wants to speak, but nobody was speaking English in that context. So he didn't speak English. The New Testament wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And the Greek work for talent, we've actually borrowed into the English language. And the equivalent today is actually billions of dollars. So I want you to imagine for a minute that you owe someone billions of dollars. Like, I don't care who you are, that's a lot of money. I mean, if we owe someone a million dollars, I think we're like, we're in trouble. 
I don't, I don't think I'm going to repay this. The point of Jesus' math here is that this is a billion dollars with a B. Like you can be, like you can be a millionaire and you're not going to pay that back. You can, you can be, have like a net worth of $10 million and you're not going to pay this amount back. This is a huge staggering sum of money. In other words, Jesus has just given them a stupid number. And that's the point of the story. You can't pay this debt. So no surprise, next verse, verse 25, says he couldn't pay. He couldn't pay. It's not, that, it's not that he was a poor saver or a poor financial manager. Nobody could pay this. That's the point of the parable. It's absurd. It's an outrageous amount of money. It says, so his master ordered that he be sold <clears throat> along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Oh, listen, and it's still not going to pay it back. But you know what? You owe me. You're going to pay something. This is going to be painful. You're going to feel this. You're going to pay something. Your wife's going to pay. Your kids are going to pay. You're not going to have a life because you took advantage of me. You wronged me. Verse 26. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. First of all, that's crazy. It's absurd. Like the math doesn't work. You could never pay it all. You look back at the original language. It is an unpayable debt. But what are you going to say? You're desperate, right? I'll work for you for the rest of my life till I'm like, I'm going to say 80 years old, but nobody in that day lived to 80 years old. I mean, I'll pay this all. I'll pay off as much as I can. Like, just have some mercy on me. Be kind to me. Like, I don't know what to say. I just don't know what to say. Just show me some mercy. Look at what happens, verse 27. And his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever had this happen. Like if a parent or a grandparent ever loaned you money and it became a grant in the end. I don't know if you ever had that happen. Like, I know this was a loan and I appreciate you trying to pay it back, but let's call it good. It's a gift. That's exactly what he did. Look, you can't possibly pay me back, so I'm going to forgive the debt. You would think that would be the end of the story, okay? Like, great little story. Point's pretty clear. But it's not the end of the story because watch what happens next, verse 28. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. So again, don't miss the context. This guy owed somebody billions of dollars. He owed somebody so much he couldn't possibly pay it back. He couldn't come close to paying it back. And now he finds somebody who owes him a few thousand dollars. Now he's just been forgiven, right? And he bumps into this guy and his, his neighbor borrowed a couple thousand dollars. Now, and again, I don't care who you are, how old you are, how bleak things look for you financially right now. You can eventually pay off a few thousand dollars. You can't. You may not have the money now, but you could get a second job or a third job or work all the overtime they'll give you. And eventually you can pay that back. So what is this guy who's been forgiven such an overwhelming debt? What does he do with the guy who owes him a few thousand dollars? says he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. You're like, what? I think the guy's like, what is happening here? I think we're like, what is going on? His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. So he begs for a little more time because he knows, he knows he can pay it. He knows he can repay the loan given a little bit of time. Like his boss is actually going to get the money. Be patient with me. I'll pay it back. Verse 30. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. And we're like, what? Verse 31. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset, understandably so. They were angry. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. 
And then the king called in the man he'd forgiven and said, you evil servant. It's a strong word. Evil servant. You know what evil is? See, see foolishness is just, well, I'm just kind of dumb and I don't mean to hurt you. I wasn't thinking about this. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. Evil is I'm out to get you. Evil is I do intend to hurt you. I intend to harm you. You are going to feel something. That's evil. He said, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And the answer to that, of course, is yes, but he didn't. Verse 34, then the anger king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. I'm not exactly sure how that worked, how he paid his debt. But anyway, Jesus finishes the teaching with this. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Remember how the story started? Peter just asked an innocent question. He's like, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Like seven times maybe? You know? I, I don't have a choice. I have to forgive. You don't have, like, you have to forgive. We have to forgive. And if you find yourself angry all the time, Do you know what the bridge is to get you to gratitude? The bridge from anger to gratitude is forgiveness. Some of you have lived this and you tell your story and it would be really powerful for us to hear. Back to our two questions. Number one, who owes you? Like in your mind, who owes you? Is it your father? Is it your mom? Is it your ex? That former boss? Maybe it's God. Like who? Then number two, why are you still so angry? Because the people around you are paying for something that happened in many cases a long, long time ago, and they're paying for your pain. So who owes you, and why do they owe you? Like, get really honest about that. <clears throat> and you know, when you really look at the story, do you know who owes me? I'm going to tell you who owes me. Nobody. In the context of this story, nobody owes me. I got adopted by a God who I owed everything to. Do you think God has a right to be angry with me, with you? Absolutely. Do you think God has a right to treat me the way that my sins deserve? Yes, He does. Do you know what He did? You know what he did for us when we threw the worst that humanity could possibly throw at God when he showed up on the planet? When we nailed him to a cross, when he tried to, we tried to like kill love? He used that very act to save us. Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for our sin and he paid what we owed and three days later he rose again and he's like, now your way to God is clear. And I got to tell you, if you've been trying to find your way to God on your own and you got this whole thing made up in your head that this is how God works, that doesn't do it. The way back to God is through Jesus. Because we actually owed God a great debt. And he forgave our debt. And he wiped our account clean. And because he forgave us, listen, nobody owes you anymore. You know what happens if we answer these questions honestly? If we really want to get to the root of our anger? <clears throat> our anger starts to dissolve into gratitude when we understand that I owe God everything 
and nobody owes me anything. So, when you're angry, let's get really practical. When you're angry, this will be super helpful for you. And you will be angry, okay? That happens. What do you do? First, stop. Let's just stop it. Let's stop being so angry. Because here's the thing about anger. What feels awesome in the moment usually feels awful just moments later. Have you found that to be true? You're like, I'm going to tell him, and I'm going to tell him exactly what I think, and I'm going to show them, and they'll never do that again, and I'm going to, and I'm just going to, like, explode on that, and it'll be great. And two minutes later, you're like, uh-oh. The morning after, you're like, uh-oh. And you come crawling back, and you're like, I didn't, I didn't really mean that. Let's stop that. And we usually can see this happening, and it isn't a great surprise to us, and this is the kinds of things that are destroying you know, maybe your family, or it's what's driving your kids away, or it's what's ruining a relationship and ruining the things that are supposed to be important to us. Like it felt awesome in the moment, but now you're wondering, why do I always do this? Why do I react like this? Why am I find myself over and over crawling back? If you want to know why, it goes back to part one of this series in Matthew chapter 7. It's because we judge and listen we are not capable of judging. God is God. We are not. And then so like afterwards, you realize that you really actually just made matters worse. Because what seems often in the moment usually feels awful later. So let's put an end to that behavior. And then I would say, so stop and then think. So like get to the other part of the brain, right? The part that's less reactive and more thoughtful and rational and think. Think, number one, like, why are you angry? Like, what's driving this response? Why do you keep coming back to this? Why are you angry? And who do you think owes you? It's like, oh, right, nobody owes me. So at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, that's good. This is just kind of like self-help, I guess. I'll go to work on myself. Thanks, Dr. Phil. Appreciate it. But this next part takes us deep into the heart of faith and deep into the heart of Christianity because I believe it's impossible to do this kind of thing unless you really rely on the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So after you've thoroughly and honestly asked and answered these questions, who owes me and why do they owe me, this is what we should do next. And I'm just going to call this one, number three, just call it pray because you've stopped your default response and you're asking, why am I angry and who owes me? Now, now, wait, ready? Pray for the person you're angry with. You're like, oh, I didn't expect that one. Yeah, pray for the person that you think owes you. This just got real, didn't it? Because this is hard. But it's also at the center of Jesus' teaching. What did Jesus say? He didn't say, pray for your friends, pray for your family, pray for your buddies, pray for all your favorite people, pray for all those people that treat you so well. No, he said in Matthew 5, he says, love your enemies. I don't know how to do that. Well, here's how. Pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Like, okay, but okay. So what's the content of those prayers? Like, what are we praying for? This is, what, this is what I think the content of those prayers is. and I, It's not according to me, it's according to Jesus. The content of our prayers for the people we're angry with is, God, I pray that you would bless them. The people I'm angry with, the people who owe me, bless them. May they have a great life. May they have a prosperous 
life. May you pour out your blessing on them. You see why you need God in this process? Because we don't want to do this. Like, I'll pray for them, all right. God, I pray you give them what they deserve. I pray you bankrupt them. I pray you give them itchy sores all over their body. I pray that their car would break down in the middle of the High Street, Main Street intersection at 4.30 on Friday afternoon. I pray that their Facebook would get hacked. <laughs> Facebook. So, so, no. Praying for your enemies sounds more like, God, I pray that they would be more successful than me. Pour out your mercy, pour out your love, pour out your blessing in their lives. And that, praying like that requires the Holy Spirit, requires the power of the resurrection, requires the power of a new creation inside you, requires the power of a new you remade through the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're having trouble getting there, that seemed like a big leap. Number four, consider all the ways you've grieved God and express gratitude for the way he's treated you. Consider all the ways you've grieved God and express gratitude for the way that he's treated you. I know this is a tough journey. For some of you, this, just this content right here is going to be enough for you to take some steps and to move forward. But for, for some of you, it's like, I don't know, I've got to unpack this. I don't, I don't really know. This is, I don't think I can get there. Maybe you should spend some time working through this, maybe in your small group, with your friends from a small group, over coffee with a trusted friend or a mentor. Maybe you need to spend some time with a Christian counselor, with a couple I could recommend. And I encourage you to do that because we've got to figure this stuff out so that our past stops ruining our present and our future. When we start to ask questions, and you get to the place where you're like, you know what? Nobody owes me anything. God has been so gracious to me, how can I hold anything against anyone else? And you become grateful because forgiveness moves you from anger to gratitude. So just stop for a second. And imagine yourself grateful. A couple weeks ago, we said, let's, let's, let's just imagine if grace was the underlying characteristic of our lives. So let's just substitute in gratitude. Imagine if gratitude was a force that drove your life. Well, you go home and you step on the Lego block again. Instead, instead of blowing up, you stop and remind yourself, no, nobody owes me anything. Nobody owes me anything. That is the kind of default reset that launches a new day in your home, in your relationships, in your parenting, in your relationship with God. God, you've been so gracious to me, I don't deserve that. And it's true that anger dissolves then into gratitude. I'm going to pray. The band and the singers are going to come. And we're going to take a couple minutes to pray together. Um, I encourage you for a couple minutes to reach out to someone near you and, and pray with one another. If you want to use the, space, the prayer space in the back, we encourage you to do that too. There's a place there you can sit uh, in one of those kind of individual chairs and just pray. No one will interrupt you. No one will bother you. Just pray by yourself. You're sitting in one of the paired chairs. One of our prayer team members will come alongside and pray with you. So I'm going to pray and then we'll take a couple minutes to pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have, I have, uh, man, I've, I've been right in the, right in the mix here on this topic. I have held others 
to account that you haven't held me to. I've substituted my judgment for your judgment. I, I, I confess that and I accept your forgiveness for that this morning. I pray for everybody here who's struggling with anger. I pray that they would come to the realization that the people they say they love the most are the people who pay the most. Like the little things become big things and nothing becomes something. So God, I pray for healing. I pray for healing in our marriages. I pray for healing in our families. Bring healing to women in this room and in our church. Bring healing to men in our church. Bring healing to teenagers and children in our church. And I thank you for the work of spiritual and emotional relational healing. And God, I pray that all of us as Christians, that you'd help us to realize that even in an angry world, nobody owes us anything. Help us to be grateful. Grateful that even though you had every right to make us pay our own debt, instead you loved us back into relationship with you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.